Welcome to No Mean City, a podcast where we explore season by season the legendary Scottish crime series Taggart ahead of its 40th anniversary. No. And while Ian is off for this episode trying to figure out just why we don't have ligatures in Maryhill, uh, I, Stephen Leptak, will be uh, taking some time to speak to an icon of Taggart, one of the major figures of the series, but that's later on. Uh, I managed to catch up with Alex Norton, who plays a guest role in Knife Edge, and memorably so. In fact, could arguably be said to have stolen the whole story. So I managed to catch up with him while he was uh, away in France. So have a listen. It was a a lovely hour that I managed to to spend with him over Zoom. Uh, Hopefully you enjoy it. So for this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by one of the figureheads of this this crime series. It it is an absolute pleasure to be talking to basically one of the key actors throughout the life of Taggart. And we're not going to be talking about how you may know him later on, but actually we're going to be talking to him about an earlier role in the series in in this interview. So uh, a bit of a, a background, he is a appeared in some of the most memorable Scottish classics, such as Local Hero, Braveheart, Gregory's Girl, as well as working with Hollywood stars such as Harrison Ford, Liam Neeson, Clint Eastwood, and Johnny Depp. And over the years, been some of the greatest British television series. Uh, You'll have seen him potentially in episodes of The Sweeney. In Bergerac, he was, if you're around the same age as me, you might remember him as the Elvis-obsessed cafe owner in the quite mental children's series Renford's Rejects, and most recently appeared in uh, Waterloo Road and the, I think, glorious sitcom Two Doors Down. Welcome to No Mean City, Alex Norton. Thank you very much. What an intro. (laughs) My God, I've had a busy time of having that. Well, you're still going. You're still going strong. (laughs) Clinging on. <laughs> I, think, I think better than that. <laughs> so what I'm keen to do is because obviously your 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 ties to Taggart are huge. But what <sighs> I want to do is talk to you initially about the first role that you played in an early episode, uh, which was Knife Edge, which is one of the real classics of the series, uh, where you played the mentally disturbed butcher George Bryce, who is pretty much from the start we know is implicated in the main murder of the plot and you're in you're in the very first uh scene as well and i, I think that must be i'm curious about your memories of filming the show so let, let me start by asking do you remember when you first heard about the possibility of being in this this crime series oh well i yes i mean i i don't remember the exact date uh but you know these things happen in the usual way that your agent calls you because because somebody calls your agent. And in this case, it was Hal Duncan, who was the director of that particular episode. And I've known, I'd known Hal for, for quite a number of years. We'd done various things together. And uh, my agent said, uh, called me and said, uh, Hal Dane Duncan at STV wants to know if you're interested in doing an episode of Taggart. And I said, oh, yes, of course I am. You know, so I got put through to Hal. And he, he kind of roughly explained the, the plot to me. And I said, well, that's Hal, yes, please. I would love to do that. That that's kind of part sounds right up my street. 
so that's how it came about. Um, and then, like, I don't know, three weeks later or something, I was, I found myself in, in Mary Hill on location. And it was, uh, it's gone now, I think. The place that we filmed in is gone now. But it was quite, it was a, a wee cottage uh, uh, that was up by the railway line. And, I, you know, I think probably 19th century cottage. And it had a, the reason they chose that particular location was because it had a ducat, you know, a pigeon house, you know, they're called ducats in, in Glasgow. Um, so they needed that, obviously, for the, for the, for the story. Um, so, yeah, that was my first day was, uh, as George was uh, handling pigeons. Now, I've never, I've never done any pigeon handling in my life. And they had to do a couple of takes because I was meant to pick up a pigeon. And it was like a, a wee Jesse. I was going, oh, oh, it's pecking me. Oh, stop, stop. I had to look as if I'd handled pigeons all my life. So eventually I just had to take a big deep breath and, you know, get hold of this pigeon and try not to hold it too tightly in case I choked the thing. Uh, and then take it through and into into the ducat, uh, where the camera pans down, and you find a woman's body under plastic sheeting. But I, I'll tell you what else I remember from that was that um, I had an idea of of who this guy was. You know, I read the script and thought about it and figured out who he was, and the fact that he was a butcher. So when you when I walked into the the ducat for the first time. I was going to have a, a knife in my hand, a butcher's knife. Now, you, we all, I think, have a mental image of what a butcher's knife looks like, you know, a big, bloody, sharp butcher's knife. And that's what I got. I there was a, a choice, you know, the prop bag up and said, what do you find? There was a meat cleaver and there was a big butcher's knife and a few other things. And I said, oh, that one. And it was the big classic butcher's knife thing. I, I thought that'll look really good on screen. You think, what the hell is he going to do with this? And before we did the take, uh, one of the crew who had actually been a butcher before he worked in, uh, on, in, in television came up to me and said, um, he said, have I got this right? He said, you're going you're gonna, to um, just, just cut this body up, aren't you? I said, yeah, yeah, that's the plan. He said, well, you see, anybody that knew anything about butchery would know that that's the wrong knife. I said, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? He said, you, you see, if you were a real butcher, you see, You'd use a bone and knife. All right. So, you know, I wanted to be as authentic as I could. I said, oh, wow, okay. So which one's the bone and knife? He said, that one there. And it was this wee thing, you know, just a toty, pretty toty wee knife. But he said, that's that's what you would use, you know, if you're cutting through the bones to separate the, the limbs and all that. I thought, all right, okay, well, yeah, I really want to get this right. So I, I, <laughs> I took the bone and knife. And I remember Hal saying to me, is that, is that, you know, you don't want the bigger knife? I said, no, Hal, no, it's going to be this, because this is the, I'm going to cut her legs off and cut her arms off, and this is the knife I would use. You see, you get into it. <laughs> and that's the kind of things you say, because you're in character. And uh, and when I saw it back, when I watched it, it was pathetic. It was this, you know, tetchy little stupid knife. It looked like a pen knife. You know, it looked like it was going to spread some patty on toast or something, rather than actually chop up a body. I should have stuck to my guns. I should have got the big one. I but I remember that very well. I can't imagine anyone complained about that. Surely <laughs> nobody would have come back on that. Yeah, but these little things haunt you. Even <laughs> now when I look back and I go, Bugger, why didn't I use the big knife? And, well, in the scenes where you're actually, 
I mean, there's a scene where you're working with black pudding. I mean, did you get any training at all in any of this? <laughs> Not so much training. I, I, the butcher, uh, we worked in the, it was a real location in the back of a butcher show uh, who were quite famous for the black puddings. Um, and, you know, I'd never, I'd never seen a black pudding being made in my life. I had no idea how it was done. But so he showed me how you, you uh, put the ingredients in and then you pour in like a bucket of blood. And I'm all right. I mean, I'm not that squeamish. I was fine. So uh, you do what I did all that and started it. Um, you know, you see the blood getting poured in. And then because it's basically a sausage, a black pudding, they, they put the, the sausage skin onto this nozzle and that, that comes up and sticks at the middle of the, the big sort of um, drum thing that the blood and the mixture goes into. And it mixes it all up. And then you have a foot pedal. So you, you put the sausage skin on it. It's a bit graphic, but you pull the sausage skin on it and then you press the foot pedal and the mixture gets squirted out the nozzle into the sausage skin. Well... <laughs> One of the women who was do, who was uh, doing it, she had to kind of um, stand there as if we were doing this thing. And we did the taste. Hal said, "Oh, let you know, we'll just go for it. It don't need to rehearse. We'll just we'll just go straight for it." So fine. So we start doing the dialogue, and it's just this kind of innocent chat in a way thing. So how are you doing, George? You know, all right. It's your birthday coming up soon. Aye, aye, it is. Okay. And I, and I pressed the pedal, <laughs> and it's huge. Huge black erection comes out the machine, and that was everybody. Everybody just exploded. I mean, couldn't you know? We couldn't carry on. It was oh god. I I, I don't want to say too much about it, but it was um, pretty graphic. Uh, so we had to we had to do take two, and I think it was a take three as well. And eventually, it was as if I'd done this, you know, all my life, and I was used to it. But it was a bit of a surprise. I was thinking that when I watched it as well. You do look almost comfortable doing it, so I wondered how many takes that would have taken. So three's not bad. I'd love to have seen the original one where we all just collapsed howling with laughter. Uh, that that must have been uh, that must have actually been fun working with. Uh, I mean, Dave Anderson, Jim Watson, and Kareen Harris. That, that must Aye. have been a fun crew. It was. It was great. Aye. I mean, Davey Anderson is somebody that I'd known for a long time. We were we were pals in London. We used to uh, sing it in folk clubs together and go in gigs. Not together, not like a double act, but, you know, we'd be at the same sort of venue. We, we used to, in fact, I met Dave at the Troubadour, a place called, which was quite famous at the time. Uh, 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 one of the most famous sort of folk sellers, they called them in London, in a coffee house. <clears throat> and everybody used to come down there, Simon and Garfunkel, Bob Dylan, everybody came there to sing at the Troubadour. Um, and so it was a great honour to go down and say, and that's when I met Dave, because I used to run a kind of folk night there on a, on a Tuesday, I think it was, and this guy turned up out the blue. Uh, um, I thought, that's a cool-looking dude. And he said, uh, you know, can I, can I sing? I said, well, we've got a few people on, you know, we're a bit tight, but I'm sure if we can... Well, I said, you're Scottish? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, oh, which part? He said, you know, just outside Glasgow. He said, I've been in Canada for a, for a few years. I'm not long back. I said, oh, great. OK, well, OK. Well, anyway, I did find a space. And he went on and he blew the room away. I mean, most folkies who got up on that wee stage played a guitar, including me. But there was a piano. And Dave sat down at the piano and played some of his own numbers. And I just thought, 
I've never heard anything like this in my life. This guy is absolutely brilliant. And so he became a bit of a regular fixture at the Troubadour and we became really good friends. So I'd known him for a long time. And and also, um, uh, after a while, I, I moved back to Scotland and I joined 784, uh, John McGrath's 784 company. And we were touring with the Chevy and the Stag and the Black Black Oil, which was doing very well. And we were looking for the next show after that. And it was going to be a show about Glasgow, set in Glasgow. And John McGrath wanted to use contemporary music, modern sort of uh, rock music rather than sort of folky music that the Chevy used. And I said, I think I know, I might know just the guy for this thing, who's, I think he's brilliant. And cut a long story short, Dave came up to see us in the TV, we were in Sky or something, we were on tour, and he came to see us with his wife, Tina. And he, he, he said afterwards, he said, I've never seen anything like that in my life. He said, this is, this is just absolutely brilliant. Where do I sign? <laughs> so he joined the company. And so I, I suppose I was kind of responsible in a way for luring him from the temptations of London back up to Glasgow. And, the, you know, he joined 74, he toured with us, and then went on to, to be the kind of, Main, uh, mainstay of Wildcat, the Wildcat company. And, you know, he's still going strong, still doing great stuff. And I still think he's a genius. Mm. Now, what he's been doing at Orden Moore for, what, 15, 20 years now? Fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I know. I know. I mean, talk about versatility. He goes from being the coolest blues player on the planet to playing Dame in their pantomime. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's talent. That's extraordinary. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, so when your 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 agent called you about the role, you you already you were already aware of Taggart. Then can you can you remember your thoughts on hearing oh the opportunity to be on Taggart is there? What what did you think of that? Well, that's interesting. I I I don't know if I'd really watched that. I think I'd seen a bit of one because it was originally it was called Killer, wasn't it? Yeah. And then then they changed it to to Taggart, but um, I don't think I was. I'd seen much because I, I was probably away on tour with the 784 when it was on. But I knew about it. I mean, everybody was talking about it. You know, it was one of those things that was like a phenomenon. And uh, so I definitely knew what it, it, it was a biggie. And it was going to be a big feather in my cap if I could pull this one off. Uh, so I was really, I was quite nervous, uh, to be honest, when I started it. I thought, please, you know, let me get this right. And I, and I, I kind of had an idea of, of how I wanted to play George. And it's all guesswork. You hope for the best. You know, you think this is how I think the character is. Um, and I hope it works. And I just wanted to play somebody who who was, I remember saying to Hal, somebody who's empty. He's he's his life is kind of there's there's nothing to him. And he's a he's hollow inside. Because the plot is quite, you know, a lot of people when they were watching it. Because, you know, the thing was, Taggart was always in three parts when it first used to go out. The first part, you get the kind of info and you think, oh, oh yeah, definitely he did it or she did it or whatever. And then you're wrong-footed. And the next one, you think, oh, I see. Oh, no, well, it's definitely him then. And then you're wrong-footed on that. And you don't really get to see who did it till the end. And most people who, who followed it assumed I was the murderer, thought I was the murderer. And even after it went out, I was still getting stopped. The only time, the first time I ever get stopped in the street by people saying, oh, you're that mad murderer on Taggart, aren't you? And of course, I wasn't really. I wasn't the murderer. I was a kind of red herring. I was involved in the murders, but just disposing of the bodies. Somebody else did the murders. 
but, but uh, you know, it, it was, for me, it was every actor, you know, let's be honest, every actor wants to be recognised. You want to be people to know who you are uh, and, and, you know, say what you like, but you do. Um, it can be a wee bit problematic uh, later on in life, but at first, it's, it's a great feeling because that's what you set out to do. You set out to be recognised. And when people do recognise you, it's a great feeling. And that's what happened um, after, after that one. I mean, I couldn't walk down a street in Glasgow without getting recognised, which was, was great at first. You know, but it's always, I mean, it's good. You know, it's better than nobody being recognised as an actor. But um, so that, that made a difference to me. That made a big difference. I'll tell you what it really made a difference was my dad, uh, who, you know, is like an ordinary working class Glasgow guy who was, who was kind of really against me becoming an actor. I was quite young when I wanted to, to become an actor and he was dead against it. He just thought it was ridiculous and that I should have got a, a trade like him and become a, a plumber. But I knew I could, I knew that that wasn't, that wasn't going to happen. So we had a lot of, a lot of um, difficult times, him and I. And it was when that came out, he changed because his mates were all saying to him, oh, I saw your boy in that tag up, John. Uh, you always see some actor that boy of yours. And I think, you know, something is that he went, oh, really? <laughs> and his attitude towards me changed quite a lot from then on. And, and we, you know, we basically sort of fallen out before that, but we became pals. That's, that's... So it made a big difference in my life in many ways. I mean that's fantastic. Am I right in thinking? Is it the Gorbals you were you 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 were born? Is that right? I wouldn't know. I was actually born in Houselwood, which right. is kind of disappeared now, but it was on the south side near near Pollock. Right. And um, we, my parents lived with my mother's family, my granny, and her sons, and we lived there till uh, I was four, because uh, they couldn't afford anywhere else. So they lived with with them, and then we got a they got a single end. In Moffat Street, in the Gorbals, a wee single end, and that's where I kind of was 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 brought up. I wasn't born there, but I remember it all very well. Got to, got to school in Oatlands Primary School. <laughs> Happy days. I loved it. I loved the Gorbals. I, I in my in my previous profession, I was a school teacher, and the first school they put me into was St Francis Primary in the Gorbals. All right. Boy, did I learn a lot. I will bet you did. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Yeah, we were uh, Oatlands. Oatlands was my one, and it was you know to be again. It was it was uh, it wasn't easy. <laughs> we had a teacher who was a horror. I mean, a genuine horror. This this woman. I don't know. You know, she'd have been thrown at the bloody Gestapo for cruelty. This year. <laughs> she she used to belt five year old kids, but not for being cheeky or talking in class. Nothing like that. If you got a sum wrong, or misspelled something, you do it in front. And she'd give you the strap at five year old, and I was quite bright, so it never happened very much to me. But I just remember the injustice, being aware of the injustice, thinking this is no right, this shouldn't be happening. You know, we're, we're just little kids. She was a real horror. Well, the reason why I asked about the Gorbals was simply, I mean, is there an irony then that the Citizens Theatre would end up there and the, the, the careers that would help? I don't know if you ever performed at the Citizens, but I did uh, indeed, yeah. I did. I, I did the pantomimes for them for four years. I was dead <clears throat> in the in the pantomimes, and and really four of the happiest years of my life. Mm-hmm. I loved it, and uh, you know, a funny thing. That's a funny thing. Was was the only other kind of show business connection 
in, in my family <clears throat> was my great uncle, Billy, Billy Norton. And I only met him once in my life. But Billy had been on the, in the variety, uh, on the variety stage as a ton. Um, and that's all I kind of knew about him. And when I went to the sets to do the panto, to do the dame at the panto, I'd never felt more at home for some reason. I'd never felt more at home on a stage than, I, than when I was doing that. I thought, this is, well, I just, not I thought, I knew that I was meant to do this, bizarre as it sounds, but I, I, I knew this was for me and I was for it. And I think I can safely say I made a success of, of playing the dame. I mean, they asked me back for four years running. And it was only later on that I found out that that's where my uncle Billy had played. But before it was the citizens, it was the Royal Princesses Theatre. And he'd, he'd played there as the comic or the stooge or the feed or whatever. That was his kind of home theatre. So who knows? I mean, you know, I'm not all that sort of superstitious, but there was definitely something. I think Uncle Billy was looking down at me from the flies. Too funny. Too funny. Nah. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you, I'll come back to Tiger in a second, but it's in my head to ask you about this. Yeah. Was it correct that you were the original, the director of the Steamy, the original play? Yes, yeah, I was, yeah. Incredible. And and, and that was that was uh, uh, Tony Roper, uh, who I'd known for a long time, uh, through the 70s. And I went out to see him once, he, he called me up and said, do you fancy doing a spot of fishing? And I said, oh, I've never done that, no, I've never tried fishing. He said, come on, he said, i got a wee place. I was at Glasgow and I went out and, and stayed over with, with him and his missus. And we were fishing. We were, I never caught anything, but we were doing, you know, throwing, throwing up worms into the bloody loch or whatever it was. And uh, he said, uh, he said, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm writing a play. And I thought, every actor <laughs> is writing a play. <laughs> Most of them never do. Uh, I said, all right, great. All right, all right. What's, what's that about? He said, well, it's, about, it's about women in a, in a wash house, you know, a steamy, uh, on, on New Year's Eve. I'm not right. Okay, that, that sounds really interesting. Good luck with that. <laughs> and that was more or less the end of it. And then a couple of years later, uh, I got a phone call from, from Tony saying, you, you see, remember I told you about that thing about the, the women in the wash house? I said, yeah, play. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, well, I've done it. He said, do you think you might be interested in uh, having a look at it to, with a view to directing it? I said, yeah, because I really did want to direct. It was something I, I really was burning to do. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I, I said, I'd love to. Um, I said, you know, if, if, if I think I can add to it, if, if I think I can uh, bring something to this, then I'll definitely be up for it. Um, but I'll, honestly, if I don't feel it's for me, I'll, I'll let you know and you can get somebody who, who would want to do it. And so he sent it to me and I read it through <clears throat> and it was, I knew it was for Wildcat. They were going to mount it. And it was going to be for a community tour, just a wee community tour around, uh, you know, um, halls and uh, corporation halls and Glasgow and various communities, community groups. So I thought this is good. This is a charming wee piece and this will go down very well. I think this will go really well. Uh, there'll be a lot of women coming to see it and the nostalgia, but they're, got to the steamy when they were wee lasses with their mother and all that. And he'd got the, the period right, sort of early 50s. And so we started, and Dave Anderson <clears throat> came back into my life, or I came back into Dave's life, because he'd written the music for it. And the songs 
I mean, the play was great on its own, but the song just lifted it into another dimension. And they were fabulous, just wonderful songs. And I thought, Christ, this is really good, you know. I, I had no idea. I don't think any of us had any idea it was going to go beyond playing community gigs because that's it was for a community data company and it was that's what it was going to be too that ran the whole <clears throat> but we got we everything the, the 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 planets aligned the stars aligned and we got the I got the best cast I could have wished for every single one of them Elaine Smith was instrumental in getting this play she took the play to the wildcat and said, I would like to do this. I like to play Dolly in this. What about doing it? And of course, they all loved Elaine. So they said, yeah, 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 we'll do it. And that's when I came on board. So Elaine, Elaine was already cast. And they had a few ideas about who else should be in it. So we went through the audition process, which for an actor who's never directed before is very interesting to be in the other side of the fence for a change and see you know, actors coming in terribly nervous. And you just want to, you know, you just want to kind of soothe them and calm them. And and they, they all give their best. They're all trying their damnedest. They all want to do the part. And you, it's terrible because you you don't want to you don't want to turn anybody down because you know what it feels like as an actor. You know what it feels like to be spurned, you know, to be told you're not, you're not wanted on the voyage. But I, I, you have to do it. That's your job. You're the director. You have to direct. So eventually, you know, I made my choices. And some of them, I didn't have to think too hard about like Dorothy Paul. I mean, Dorothy just, and I remember Dorothy from when my pal and I, we, Billy McDermott and I, we were school kids and we, we dogged the school. We, we stayed off school and went to, up to Hope Street to the STV studios and queued up early in the morning, like the back of nine o'clock. Instead of going to school, we got a bus into town and queued up to see the one o'clock gang to get in to see the one o'clock gang. And the, the whole idea of getting to see a television studio and real television was, was so exciting to me. And as we waited uh, towards the more, uh, about 10 o'clock, is half past 10, this taxi drew up, the door opened, and out came Marilyn Monroe. And the middle of it was Dorothy Paul, of course, but the Glasgow Marilyn Monroe. She just looked a million dollars. I'd never seen anything so glamorous in my life. And I just stood there open mouth as she walked past and kind of waved to the queue and went in the stage door. So there was I, years later, auditioning her for the steamy. And I thought, oh my God, I can't ask her. I can't. This is this, this vision that I saw when I was a wee boy. I can't ask her to read for me, but I had to. So I asked her to read a scene and then maybe try it a wee bit differently. And she said, do you want me to sing a song? She was, being, she was being quite sort of, right, now, that's fine. Now, do you want me to sing a song? That was that was the way she presented it. I said, well, yeah, yes, if you don't mind. You know. And she sang a song. I thought, oh my God, that, I had no idea. I had no idea what happened to Dorothy since I saw her as a wee boy and, and now. But she still looked fantastic when she walked in. And the voice was amazing. And I just thought, well, there's no there's no competition. This is this is who I want. So we got Dorothy in and Katie Murphy, who I couldn't believe her voice when she sang. She was perfect. Um, and Ida Schuster played old Mrs. Uh, Colpeta. I mean, it was just, it was a dream cast, absolute dream cast. And, you know, we had our, we had our ups and downs during rehearsals, as these things do. 
Um, but we ended up with something that on the first night um, I knew was, we all knew, was going to be a, a smash. You just know. And it was, and they gave it 100%. It had a fabulous cast. They gave it loudly. And the show just went to, into the stratosphere. Yeah, I saw it a couple of years ago in the Hydro. It was huge. It oh, was aye, aye. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I warned you I would go off in tangents, so we'll come back to Taggart. But the last, aye, thing, sure, uh, sure. The, the last thing I'll ask on, on that topic is, when you look back at your career so far, yeah. do, do you actually think about, while I've actually been in so many touchstones of Scottish culture, you've been in Gregory's Girl, Braveheart, mm. The Steamy, Taggart, I mean, yeah. you, you do kind of, you link all of those amazing moments in Scottish media. Well, that's right. it's only in retrospect, really, when you look back, you go, oh, my God, yes, they were a bit like that. At the time, <laughs> you know, the time, it's, it, it's uh, that's what you do. You're an actor, and, that, and here's this job has come up on a, on a film or a, a stage, and you just go through your career, and it's, you're, if you're lucky, you get some good mm. parts to play. Uh, and it's only when you look back, you go, God, I, they were all a wee bit. You know, I've done some stuff that wasn't uh, a smash hit or anything like it. But, you know, we'll leave that aside. <laughs> but, but the stuff that I did do, uh, they were, you know, huge parts. But I was in them. I was part of all that. I was in Gregory's Villa. I was in Local Hero. I was in Comfort and Joy, you know, Bill's besides mm. films. Um, and, 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 and 784 as well. I was a founder member of the, the original 784 company. So you know, it was all it was all good. It was all good. I can I think I can look back and without saying, God, I wish I'd, you know, I wish something better had happened to me. I'm very happy with all the stuff that I did. Maybe I could have acted it better, but I'm very happy that I did it. Well, let's come back to uh, another Scottish acting legend then. So Mark McManus and Alistair, uh, did you did you know them at all? You're not. No. You don't spend a lot of time with them in the show itself. But the one no, major no. scene is fantastic with you all. I no, I didn't. I didn't really uh, know Mark at all. I mean, I knew of him, of course, but um, no, I didn't. I didn't know him. And the only, I think, the only big scene we had was was when he came to interview me at, at, outside the Duke at the Pigeon Pigeon House, and and uh, I think that I think that was the only scene in that that we had together, uh, because it wasn't long after that that um, I get shot in the head, which <laughs> is. Deeply unpleasant. Uh, how how did you find uh, working with them? Then uh, we hear a lot of stories. A lot of people are very complimentary about them. Do you remember that scene uh, at all? Oh, I do remember the scene. I don't remember too many details about it, you know, because you're concentrating on on your own performance and stuff like that. But he was he was great. Yeah, absolutely great. So, you know, I don't ever remember a moment where you thought, "Oh, this guy's a bit of a big head," or "This guy is this that or the next thing." He was just great. It was a really good, solid professional actor and uh, you know we played off each other that's the great thing when when it goes well it's like playing tennis you know with a good tennis player and they bat the ball you bat the ball, ball back and forward and it was like that with Mark you know it was it was uh, it was a real privilege to to work with him so so what was it like being shot by a Diamante encrusted black glove Did, that must have been an experience <laughs> well interestingly I mean we we shot it in the back uh, we shot it, we filmed it <laughs> in the back of the butcher's shop. And there was all these um, sort of black puddings and things hanging up on, on racks. And I said to, to Hal Duncan, the director, I said, um, 
I said, you know what, Hal, what about this? What do you think? Uh, if I'm standing next to one of these black puddings, you put a charge in the black pudding. So it's as if the bullet's gone through the black pudding and into me. And he went, oh, yeah, yeah that's not a bad idea. So we did it. And even though it's only a, you know, a flash for a second, I know it's there. You can see it as the black pudding kind of explodes. And then I go, Whoa! and just fall out of frame. And, uh, and then he wanted a shot of me lying on the floor. Uh, so, you know, they got in the makeup, came around and put a sort of hole in the middle of my head. And I said, how? <laughs> what? What is it? I said, if I had been shot through the head and I was lying on the floor, and, you you know, it just happened. I said, the blood would be pulling out under me. He said, oh, well, I, I, with a wood bit, say, but can he do that? Can he do that? We'll not, we'll not be allowed to do that. You can't really show the blood flowing. I said, oh, go on, I'll try it. I <laughs> go on. Oh, God. Well, he said, we'll do one first of all, you know, but it's no. I'll put some round your head. He said, but um, I, I said, okay, we'll do this. We did that. And I said, now try the other thing. So they got a kind of little tube with a syringe on the end full of blood. And as I lay there, they pressed the thing and the blood started pulling out from it. I mean, a bit bloody gory when you think about it, but I wanted it to, to be really shocking because you didn't expect uh, this guy to get shot uh, by the gloved hand of doom. So uh, I wanted it to be as, as, as people to be really shocked. And go, oh my God, what's just happened here? You can't be the murderer of it. The glove, the guy with the gloved hand is the murderer. Who is it? Well, when we were talking to, to Glenn a couple of episodes ago, I asked him about his interest. I, I wondered because I, I think Taggart is such a macabre show and the mm. gore is actually a really important part of it. So oh, uh, right. he, he he was quite honest that he does have a real interest in that side of things. But it's interesting to hear that uh, Haldon Duncan was a bit wary of that because I thought they it were wasn't, really he wasn't wary. No, he wasn't wary. He was just aware right. of. of of the restrictions at the time, the strictures on what you could and could not show on telly. And one of them was, you can't show blood flowing. You can show somebody with blood on them, but not actually, you know, as it would in real life, pouring out them. So, in fact, I don't think, I, I, I don't think they used the take, looking back on it, they just, he had to use the take, but the blood was static. You could see the blood under me, but it was static. It wasn't actually spreading. In a pool. So you were saying after the show went out, you were recognised quite a lot. But what was the reaction that that you remember from the episode itself? And I I, I saw you being interviewed by Lorraine Kelly recently, where you spoke about this episode and the episode, uh, the part, the scene where you're carrying the box into the into the butchers, and everyone thinks it's a head. That's that, right. You got quite a lot of uh, reaction to that. Can, can you talk about about what people were saying to you after this went out? Oh, just that, just that, you know, I'd hear it from the other side of the street. I'd be walking along uh, a street in Glasgow. Hey, hey, you, you're a mad butcher. You know, you murdered many mere women. You put them in the black puddings. <laughs> and then this, they actually, I mean, that was the thing. People actually thought that that had happened, that I was putting, even though I didn't in the thing, it was nothing to do with me. They still thought they, they'd come away with the, the image that I was mincing up women and putting them in the black puddings. So it, it's just it's kind of interesting, isn't it, how strong these these images can be and how we tell ourselves a narrative, even though it doesn't really exist. A bit like yeah. Boris Johnson, I suppose. <laughs> well, we will he not get political. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that. 
Oh, we'll be here all night if we go down that road. Oh, God. <laughs> so, uh, I, I guess, uh, to, to finish up on this, uh, I, I'm curious, did you did you stay close to Tiger? Did you keep watching it after the show? Um, um, what, no, what I, I didn't. I did, I did, yeah, no, I didn't really. And, and the reason for that is because I'm not a, a huge fan, never have been a huge fan of detective fiction. Uh, I've always had an interest in, in real life sort of murder mysteries, whodunits, but the re- it's got to be a real life thing. They, you know, they, they're kind of teletext. It's, it's never really been my my thing. I'm not, I'm not snooty or snobby about it, but it just it's never really interested me. And and I was, you know, I was doing other stuff. I was doing theatre. I was out in, in the evenings and all that. So I didn't really see much of Target. Um but I was aware, just obviously aware of how successful the show had been um, and how it was always labelled gritty. It was always called the gritty Glasgow detective thing. And the ones that I did see, though, or the bits that I did see, I really thought Mark was outstanding. I mean, he was. They could not have got a better person to play Jim Taggart. Uh, he was fantastic. And so when, um, after Mark had gone, um, I got the the phone call about taking over. Um, I, I really had to, although I desperately wanted to do it, I had to think, was this a, a good move? You know, it's big shoes to fill. But the thing was that, that really, um, that, that um, I didn't quite follow in Mark's footsteps. You know, there was, a, there was a, quite a few episodes before I came on the scene. And uh, what was it? Was it uh, Jardin? No, is it Jardin? Jardin, yes. Jardin, yeah. Had had uh, had become the head of the mm-hmm. of the squad, and um, and then I think he had to. He he decided he'd done enough. He was it was a a problem with ill health. I don't know what it was, but anyway, he he um, uh, he he decided that uh, enough was enough. So they had to get somebody else in, and. I, yeah, yeah, I knew it was an opportunity, heaven sent opportunity to really, really put your name on something, really put a stamp on something. And I was, you know, I, just, I don't, what am I trying to say? I'd still get nervous about things. I always have been. You know, if you're, if you're really trying to give your, your, your best, it is quite nerve wracking. And a lot of actors will tell you that. If pressed, most of them don't. You know, we 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 all try to sort of put on a a thing that is, you know, you just stroll onto the set, land your lines, go on the set, you have a good laugh, and everything's great. Well, it's not really like that. Uh, so when we came to do the first episode, um, I was I was pretty nervous about how things were going to go uh, and how the rest of the cast would accept me or take to me uh, taking over the role. But they couldn't have been nicer. I mean, really, genuinely, could not have been more welcoming and nicer. And so we did the first episode, and we, you know, but then we carried on filming the second, third episode. And by the time we were, I think, on to the third or the fourth one, the first one had been cut together, and it was going out. So, John Mickey. Uh, said, do you want to come round to my flat? And we'll watch it. And I'm really interested in seeing what it's like. So uh, John and I, and uh, we call him 
McCready went round to, to John Mickey's flat and uh, he had, he was such, he was so good at all this stuff, John. He had a couple of bottles of champagne and I think some oysters or something like that. You know, it really made an, an event out of it. And I was, I was, God, I was sitting there with my legs crossed, thinking, oh, God, I, I, want, to, I want, I was going to be watching, like, you know, the way you used to watch Doctor Who from behind the couch, because I had no idea what it was like. And, and it started with the whole, the new credits and, and uh, you know, a new arrangement for the No Mean City theme. And within 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I'd kind of forgotten. I'd forgotten that I was watching it to see if I was any good in it. And I'd got so caught up in it. And what they'd had realized, they'd brilliantly done, we all realized they'd done so brilliantly was, was bring the city of Glasgow back into it as the, as the co-star. And it was one of the stars. And when, if you didn't know, I always thought if you didn't know where that city, if you were watching it, that episode or Target generally, it's somewhere else in Europe, because they showed it all over the place, and you didn't know where that was, you think, where is that amazing city? Because Glasgow looked fantastic in it, and they used the locations. Um, so, but in the end of it, we all just applauded, you know, sitting there watching it in John's flat, we all just applauded and went, that was absolutely brilliant, that was fantastic. And so my heart stopped pounding so much, and I thought, this is great, I'm loving this, I'm loving this. Well, I mean, one, I'm hoping one day we can talk to you again for future episodes when, when we get to that uh, point of the series. We're working mm. uh, series by series, so we're a long way off it yet. Um, right. but, but as you talk about that, it makes me wonder just how important was the series as a whole to, to, to Scotland's production companies, to the actors? Oh. But just what did it mean? Oh, it's huge. I mean, it was, you know, it provided work. For, for so many people and, and crews and, and backstage and the technical crews and actors, so many actors, Scottish actors, uh, went through Taggart. In fact, you know, there's now a bit of a badge of honour that you were one of the ones that wasn't in Taggart. They'd always said, well, I was never in it, you know. Oh, really? Well, I don't know why you missed out. Everybody else was. And, you know, there was more resurrections than Lazarus in Taggart. People, people who had been murdered were coming back, you know, three or four shows later to somebody else. Uh, so it was a it was a huge thing, and there was no, there was nothing to touch it at the time. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of gritty cop shows since, but at the time it was it was in a class of its own. And you look back in those episodes now, as I do sometimes, I now watch them, even though I didn't at the time, at the Mark McManus ones, and they were they're so good, so gripping, so enthralling. And I think what was brilliant. Let me just say, I know we're running out of time, but no, no. What I thought was so brilliant about the original format was that because it was done in three parts, it was perfect. Part one, people would watch it and they'd go to their work the next day because, of course, nobody had VHS players there. But they'd go to their work the next day and say, oh, did you see Target last night? I think it was so-and-so. Did you? Oh, no, definitely. It's not him. No, I think it was so-and-so. And they talked about it and they built what the mouth built up. And then the viewing figures for the second episode would be even bigger. And then the same thing would happen again. The, oh, no, I thought it was him, but, you know, he get bumped off, so it couldn't be him. It, it must be this other person. And then the third one was through the roof. I think it, it, at its high point, it was getting something like 11.5 million viewers per episode, which is unheard of. In fact, when the, when the 
the viewing figures uh, came out the day after that first episode I was in. Uh, I don't mean the, the knife edge, I mean when I was playing Matt Burke. When the viewing figures came out, Colin McCready came out to me, he said, have you seen the last night's viewing figures? I said, no, no. He said, six and a half million. And I said, I remember it, I said, oh, shit. Really? Oh, shit, really? He said, what, what are you on about? I said, well, you know, Target used to get 11 and a half million. He says, these days, six and a half million is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. He said, we've knocked it off. Oh, really? I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea that that was a good figure. Well, I used to, um, I'm, I'm a media journalist during the day. Right. So uh, back when I started this uh, this profession, I used to go to the STV press calls and no one went for any other reason to ask, when's Taggart coming back? When's uh, Taggart coming back? Uh, Are you bringing Taggart back? And they still get asked it today, I'm told. Is that right? Pretty well, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I think if they do bring it back, it certainly won't be with us guys. It'll be a whole new crew, and that's as it should be. Um, but I did hear one rumour, and I don't, I don't know if it's true or not, but every, you know, every now and again you hear somebody saying, oh, I, I, I've heard that, you know, this is going to happen. And the, the, one, the last one I heard was that Jim Taggart in the original series had a daughter, uh-huh. and quite a young girl who was a daughter, and that now she's an adult, and she comes back to head the crime squad. So for the, there's actually somebody called Taggart uh-huh. in the show, Taggart. Because a lot of people who came, come fresh to it, why is it called Taggart? There's nobody in it called Taggart. But the, so I thought that's a brilliant idea, whether they'll actually do that or not. Who knows? Well, I mean, that I'll close off in a second, but that reminds me to ask, I mean, it's the 40th anniversary next year. Any oh. word on anything being done? Have you heard anything? No, not a thing. No, nothing at all. No, yeah, I'll tell you, we don't. We haven't even been told that the series is finished. Nobody. <laughs> we, just, we were all expecting to start the next series and whatever it was, the usual, you know, sort of time of the year uh, when it was generally went, and we just never heard a thing. Nobody said, "Sorry, guys, you know, it's it's over now. We're not we're not doing it again." So as far as I know, I'm I'm still under contract. I'm still waiting for the call. No, it did. It came as a hell of a surprise because when the show was taken off, it wasn't because the viewing figures had dropped. No. You know, they they kept pretty steady. Um, and I, to be absolutely honest, I don't really even know what the story was behind it being dropped. I, I've I got do. a vague, I've got a vague notion. I'm sure. Yeah, but I've got money a vague couldn't afford to make it anymore. They just ran yeah. out of money. Yeah, shame. But yeah, you think you know, you, every time you pick up a paper, there's anything about Target, but how many? Places been shown all over the world mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So you think really it wasn't making any money; it was making a loss. I know there's more to the finances yeah. than than that simple kind of equation, but it did seem odd. Why? Why would you not make it when it's doing well and it's successful and it seems to be making money? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for for spending. The last nearly an hour now, talking away and uh, reliving some of those amazing memories. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. It was nice to, nice to dip into them. Well, uh, as I say, we will haunt you in the future, hopefully, to talk when, when DCI Matt Burke turns up on our timeline. Hopefully, we'll be able to persuade you to, to talk about, about how, you, how you made that character real. I'd but, be delighted. Well, I'd be delighted. Well, nice talking to you. Take care and uh, enjoy uh, the rest of your time in France. 
Thank you very much, Stephen.